I'd like to just read um, one verse of hymn 112. It's a remembrance hymn. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are worthy of thyself divine. But the bright glories of thy grace beyond thine other wonders shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee or who hath grace so rich and free? And grace is, is a major theme in the book of Romans. It's not our theme tonight, but I just thought that in consideration of the wonder of God's greatness, it's grace in our experience. Of course, that's an expression of God's love that bubbles up to the top and is something that we can enjoy. And we'll, we'll touch on that. But we're in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we've had our opening considerations from Ian about Paul's calling and his credentials as an apostle. And then the, the calling and the privilege of the disciples in the church in Rome to holy service uh, to God. That was our first um, ministry. Then we had uh, David King a couple of weeks ago in the second half of chapter one which deals with the wrath of God against fallen mankind. And we're learning, amongst other things, that the wrath of God is an essential companion to his divine nature and his eternal power and his holiness. Today, our theme that we've been given in the framework for our study is the first 16 verses of chapter two, and it's faith and works Jew and Gentile together, looking at God's impartiality, the Jew's responsibility to privilege and the Gentile's responsibility to the law that they have in their hearts. So that's our brief. There's a couple of points I'd like us to remember at the start before we get into our passage. And the first is um, to always keep in mind the audience, who it is that Paul is writing to. And he's writing this letter to people, disciples of the Lord Jesus, that's born again, regenerate uh, Christians in the Church of God in Rome. And they are a blend of Jews and Gentiles. That's the um, audience of the entire book. And we'll touch on why that's particularly important in a second. And then I'd like to remind us of the purpose of the book. When we studied the Gospel of John together, I learned something that will stick with me every time I kind of delve into John's Gospel. And it's that reference at the end of the book that defines why the book was written, uh, where John says that he's written these things so, so that people who read them would know that Jesus Christ is the, is the Son of God and that they might, by believing in him, have um, new life in his name that's towards the end of the book and remember we were saying that unlike the other gospels which was a narrative of the life of the lord john's gospel was um, a collection of um, testimonies that when pulled together supported that statement that john had at the end i find that really helpful and i'd like to apply the same principle in our consideration of the book of Romans. And I'm gonna use chapter one and verse 16 and 17 as what we might consider to be 
the core statements, the core truth that Paul is assembling an argument to support throughout the, the whole book. So for me, Romans 1, 16 and 17 are a couple of key verses. This is what Paul is building his argument to prove. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For the gospel, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last. Um, some versions might say a righteousness that is by faith, from faith to faith, just as this is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that's Habakkuk, a quotation from Habakkuk chapter two. Maybe we can underline those verses in, in our Bibles in the context of our study, because I think wherever we get to, we'll find ourselves coming back to that as the um, summary of what it is that the Apostle Paul is teaching through the entire book. But let's go to our chapter, chapter two verses, the first 16 verses. And Paul's dealing with faith and works, both for Jew and Gentile. And in these readings, my, in these verses, my attention was arrested by five words. And I'll share them with you now and look out for them as we read the 16 verses together. In sequence, the five words are judgment, repentance, truth, favoritism, and conscience. It's um, an interesting collection of uh, uh, words that seem to me to be core to what Paul is sharing with the Roman Christians. Let's go to our reading, Romans 2 verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done, to those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing or even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Before we go into our five words, I want to come back to make the point about the audience. Our lesson last week, um, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, about the wrath of God, Paul uh, refers to people as they and them, uh, as distinct from his audience. And the lessons from last week about the wrath of God were um, associated and referring to all of fallen mankind. So Paul is saying in chapter one, they and them. In contrast, when we get to chapter two, he is referring to you, not them, but you. And that is his specific audience. So the, the object of the um, lessons in chapter two belong to the disciples of the Lord Jesus in the church of God in Rome those that we read in chapter one who are called to be saints. And we, we need to bear that in mind as we consider what we've read together. Let's turn to our first word, judgment. And I want to just read the first three verses again. You, remember, that's the people who the, the letter is addressed to, disciples of the Lord Jesus. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at what, whatever point you judge the other, are you, condemning, uh, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you a mere man pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? It's a, it's a hard thing <laughs> if we, extract this verse uh, on its own and take it out of its context we could perhaps be forgiven for thinking that if we as Christians uh, somehow judge other people for their unbelief then our salvation can be taken away from us that's not the case of course we know that's not the case from the abundance of of the teaching in, in the rest of scripture and in the, in the rest of Romans, even in the rest of our chapter. But it, it speaks of the danger of taking verses out of context and applying them um, to people that they're not actually written to. I think that Paul's message here, and, and one of the things we find is that the fundamental flow of Romans is about doctrine, it's about teaching. Um, but every now and again, Paul seems to go off on a little bit of a tangent and he applies a lesson, uh, a practical lesson for the readers, for his readers. And I think what Paul is saying in this opening part of chapter two is judgment of others is the prerogative of God. And it seems as though some in the church in Rome had got in the habit of forgetting where they had come from in their Christian um, belief and 
experience. And they get to a point where they see people around them who are living very sinful lives. And they forget that that's where they came from themselves. Uh, but for the grace of God, that's where they would still have been. And they stay, they make judgment against these people. And Paul is, is saying that by so doing, they're showing contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, uh, which is what led them to repentance, faith, and salvation. That's in verse three. And verse three is alarming, isn't it? It says, do you, that's the Roman disciples, think you will escape God's judgment? We need to remember the audience. These are people who have been saved from God's eternal judgment. And my suggestion is that um, what's being referred to is judgment in their Christian lives. It's the withholding of blessing and the life to the full experience that is promised to committed disciples. Paul was saying to these disciples who had got into the habit of thinking themselves somehow um, having earned their salvation and making judgment against others. Um, and this was the, the danger of that attitude was that their Christian lives would be spoiled. Something for, for us to keep in check, that we remember always, there but for the grace of God go I, and recognize that judging fellow mankind is the prerogative of God, not ours. That's one of those little kind of tangents, I think, that um, Paul was warning disciples of the Lord Jesus in Rome to be on their guard about. Second word that grabbed my attention was from verse four and it's repentance. Or uh, it's talking about the disciples who show that kind of judgmental attitude. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. Note the ongoing tense, the kindness of God leads you towards repentance. Um, Paul is talking about a continuing experience of repentance, I think. And therefore, it's not the uh, once and forever experience of repentance at the point of salvation. He's talking about the importance of having that ever fresh appreciation of um, God's grace and kindness and tolerance and patience with us that lead us to um, everyday repentance and faith and experiencing cleansing every day. My mind goes to another familiar verse in, in Romans, which is perhaps more often applied out of its context rather than in its context. And actually, the application is, is appropriate uh, on both counts. But let's turn to Romans 6, 22 and 23. It's a very familiar verse. Uh, Romans 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
know, the wages of sin in the life of a Christian, this is us being unrepentant uh, in our daily lives and allowing sin to have its way and its priority in our lives. The wages, the consequence of that is death in our Christian lives. Fruitlessness, missed opportunity to glorify our Savior with our lives. And I think that's the, the point that, or the challenge that Paul is making when he's addressing these comments to disciples in Rome, that we need to realize the benefit of God's grace and repentance every day, because if we don't, it will spoil the value of our Christian lives and we'll lose the opportunity that we have to be the people that God called us to be, the saints, as he refers to them, that God called us to be. That's the second word. The third word is truth. And it's mentioned a couple of times, but the one I wanted to emphasize is in verse eight. Now, in verses five to 11, we won't take the time to read them all again here, but in his reference, Paul seems to me to be switching between the people he's referring to. Again, I'm emphasizing the importance of uh, remembering the audience that Paul is writing to. And it seems to me in these four or five verses, he is switching between the they of chapter one, where the they of chapter one is all of fallen mankind, to the you, which we're reading about in chapter two, um, which is the disciples of the Lord Jesus. So saved, regenerate people who are eternally, eternally saved. And for me, in verse eight, where it mentions truth, this is a key word that helps us understand how the phrases that Paul is using, uh, who they are referring to. Let's read verses six to eight. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. It seems to me that these two verses, even though they're next to each other, Paul is actually addressing two different kinds of people. Um, let's deal with the second first. Um, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. My contention is that Paul is referring to the same people that he was referring to in chapter 1 and verse 18, where he also uses the word truth. Go back to verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, but they have made, but, um, sorry, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So we're talking about men who are without excuse and they have, despite the evidence for God around them, they have um, suppressed the truth. So Paul is referring to people who refuse to accept God, 
refuse to acknowledge him. They are unsaved people. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, he's saying that those people who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, um, what's in store for them is the wrath and anger of God. Very solemn and um, challenging verses for us to consider, or words for us to consider. But the eternal life that's referred to in verse 7 is the promise of those who promise to those who through faith accept the truth about God. Eternal life is promised, something to look forward to after this life, but more than that, for those who through faith in verse 7 persist in their discipleship, they will enjoy eternal life in the here and now. And that's the life that Jesus called living life to the full. So you get the point that take verse seven in isolation and it's a verse that could easily be used for salvation by good works but that's not what it means and the word truth in verse eight demonstrates that uh, it's a call for us to um, continue faithfully in our persistence in discipleship and eternal life is promised in the here and now and it's also a statement as to what's in store for those who reject the truth, that is, reject God despite the evidence around him. There is no salvation by works, just salvation by faith first to last. That was our key verse in chapter one. Or from faith to faith, from faith to faith. You get the sense that this is a progression of ever stronging faith ever stronger faith through the life of committed disciples. It's as though the more we commit to serving God, the stronger our faith becomes and the more fulfilled fulfillment we get from being his disciples living life to the full. Our fourth word um, is favoritism. And the punchline here is there is none. There is no favoritism with God. Verse nine, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. You know, this is an essential component of Paul's argument. We're going back now to core doctrine. And it was one that the Roman disciples needed to hear because they were a blend of, although in Rome, they were a blend of converted Jews and converted Gentiles. And we will hear more of this in chapter three, but Paul argues in chapter three, even though he was a, a kind of prestigious, uh, well-accomplished Jew, a Pharisee, he concludes there is no advantage of being a Jew or a Gentile. We'll hear more of that as we progress through the doctrines that he's teaching. You know, the Bible teaches that the Jewish nation, of course, is very special to God. And that's everywhere you look in scripture. It was in the past and it will con continue to be in the future. But for us in this day of grace, there is no partiality. In the Christian world, this is a given. Now, I think there's an application of this truth today um, with the statements about racism that's going on 
there is just no place for that in uh, the Christian gospel message where it's very clear there is no favoritism as far as God is concerned. And we come to our last word, which is conscience. Um, conscience, uh, I would say, is our built-in, uh, sorry, our inbuilt moral compass. And it's the source of knowing what is right and wrong. Let's go to verse 14. Uh, Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the Levitical law that the Jews have, do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, even defending them. This is a, another fundamental truth for us to embrace that uh, our conscience um, of the requirements of God's law are built into our human psyche. Uh, it's a, an amazing expression. They're written on our hearts. That's the case, I believe, for unregenerate mankind. That's his argument in chapter one, that they're without excuse because of what is blatantly obvious around them, and they ignore it at their peril. I'd like us to reflect on the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to conscience. We read in John 16, verse 8, when the Lord's teaching his disciples about the role of the Holy Spirit, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. We ought to remember that the Holy Spirit, you know, the clue is in the title, he's holy. And for disciples of the Lord Jesus, he's living, he's dwelling in us. And this is a, a kind of ever fresh prompt in our sensitivity to sin. Go back to uh, chapter one again, and verse 21 to 25. These are really pretty scary verses, but they're part of Paul's fundamental argument. It's talking about those who've rejected the truth. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, to the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now this is, a, in my mind, it's, it's a fairly accurate description of the world we live in today. People who deny what to us is obvious around us, the evidence of God, and they seem to celebrate sin. And I'd just like to 
emphasize the importance of us recognizing that the, the world we live in is so damaged by sin. And it's as though God gets to a point where he hardens men's hearts and their opportunity is gone. I'd like us to just uh, conclude with a, an uplifting verse um, that we can celebrate. And it's verse four. We've already talked about it um, a couple of times in, in the talk so far. And I was trying to think in this um, passage that's rich in doctrine, um, challenging in many, in many ways. There is a, a verse to celebrate, and it's verse four that we can celebrate the riches of God's kindness, his tolerance and his patience that leads us towards repentance. Now, this is a, a daily experience that we can have of the richness of God's kindness and his patience and his tolerance with us as we, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, continue to exercise sensitivity in our consciences to sin around us but more importantly to sin in our own lives and by his grace we confess our sin and he forgives our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness and helps us to live the fulfilled lives that he's called us to live as his saints the key to living up to the expectations of the one who loves us and has called us to be his saints. That's a daily attitude of uh, sensitivity to sin and repentance and claiming the forgiveness that we can have because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Thank you. <laughs>